turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 13 this morning and continue on to the end of the chapter and the end of the book. Hear the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us with the names this morning. You would also help us with the themes and the theology behind all of this. Lord, help us to relate it to our own lives to see Uh, how and what you are up to in our own lives for the sake of your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the front porch of his grocery store, country store in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln was dejected that his business was failing. Uh, He wanted to study law but couldn't afford to. One day a strange-looking wagon came down the road. driver pulled up close to the porch and looked at Lincoln with sort of a a look of desperation in his eyes, and he said, I'm trying to move my family out west, but I'm out of money. I do, however, have a barrel here that I could sell you for 50 cents. And Lincoln uh, looked at the man, then he looked in the wagon and saw the the family and looked particularly at the wife and her eyes of, of, of true desperation. And uh, he said to the man, well, I reckon I could use a good barrel. (laughs) And gave the man his last 50 cents. So the last few coins that he had in his pocket. Well, later, the man drove off, and uh, the the same barrel sat on his porch for about a week, I think. And finally, uh, at the end of the week, he opened up the barrel, looked inside, and, and just found a bunch of worthless papers for the most part. But then when he finally reached down to the bottom of the barrel... It was a copy of Blackstone's commentary on English law, the very book that he would need in order to study law. So you wonder sometimes uh, how these acts of kindnesses uh, can have a reverberating effect later on in our lives. Lincoln later said this, I stood there holding the book in my hands and looking up toward the heavens, there came a deep impression on me that God had something for me to do And he was showing me then that I had to get ready for it. Amazing sometimes how the providence of God works out in those ways. But you can see that all throughout the book of Ruth. We see it both in the life of Ruth as well as in the life of Boaz. Both of their acts of kindness toward Naomi have long-reaching effects for the generations to come. I mean, after all, again, Ruth is sacrificing her future for the sake of her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's giving up her prospects for a husband 
In the same way, Boaz is taking a great risk by uh, buying the rights to Naomi's property and putting all this money and time into this, knowing that he's not going to receive the benefit from it, but rather uh, the son of Ruth is going to receive that benefit through an, uh, her, her dead husband's name. But nevertheless, we see that these are acts of kindness that later on are rewarded for the sake of the righteous. You know, today in our culture, we, you've probably seen the, the bumper stickers all around that we ought to practice random acts of kindness. I wouldn't say that's what this is here. These are not random acts that are performed by Ruth and Boaz, but rather well-thought-out, sacrificial, loving acts that culminate not only in the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, but also in this child Obed, and then two other sons of really great importance in the life of Israel and the life of the world. Through this blessed union, God would provide for His people in three amazing ways. So if you're taking notes today, here's the time to write down your outline. The three ways God provides for His people through this union of Ruth and Boaz. First, God would provide a Redeemer for Naomi through Obed. Second, He would provide a King for Israel through David. And third, He would provide a Savior for the world through Jesus. So let's take a look at those in their turn. First, through the birth of Obed, God would provide a Redeemer for Naomi. Uh, notice in verse 13 how quickly the narrator moves from the marriage ceremony, if you will, to the birth of their firstborn son, Obed. With all the plotting and all the drama that's been going on throughout the chapters of Ruth, we see here it is God's wonderful blessing. God is the one who is opening the womb of Ruth that she might conceive and bear a child. If you remember, she had not had children for 10 years with her previous husband, was not able to, to bear a son, but now the Lord has opened her womb. This is the second time, and only the second time, the last time, in fact, in the book of Ruth, in which God is said to directly intervene in the lives of these characters. Uh, we see over and over again, they're always doing things, and then God is behind the scenes working things out. But in the beginning of Ruth, we see that there was a famine in the land that God had caused, but then God had also brought bread to Bethlehem. That was his first direct intervention. And now secondly, God is opening the womb of Ruth. He is said to directly do this in that sense. So that again, the, the purpose of this is to show that there's something very purposeful behind this new act of what God is doing, how he's going to bless this family and the generations to come. Notice the ladies when they're referring to the blessing that they give. They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you, referring to Naomi, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. They're not referring to Boaz here. Even though Boaz is the redeemer of Ruth in that sense, they're not referring to Boaz here, but rather they're referring to the son, Obed, her, Naomi's grandson. For it's her grandson who would inherit the rights to her property and would then continue on the, the lineage of her husband and her son. So he would be the actual redeemer of Naomi. And so the women talk of him as, as the redeemer, but then they also talk of him as being the restorer of her life and a nourisher of her old age. You guys remember that old 80s movie, Cocoon? I hadn't seen that movie in a long time. <laughs> but if you remember, it was a bunch of uh, senior citizens, I think, in a nursing home 
that uh, snuck over next door and, and, and to get into a swimming pool. And it just so happened in that swimming pool, there was some sort of extraterrestrial life force that immediately rejuvenated their lives and got rid of all their ailments. And then they were also running around like kids, climbing trees and, and dancing again, you know, in that sense. But in the sense that physically they were restored to life, if you will. It's interesting, uh, even uh, having my mother-in-law live with, live, live with us uh, over the last few weeks, I, I took her out to play tennis the other day. And she absolutely loved it. And she looked like a little kid again. It's amazing sometimes what God can do through your relations, you know, through putting those different generations together and, and how you feed off one another, what I've gained from her and what she's gained from us in that sense. But in somehow this son would, would give her life again would give her a, a, you know, of course she'd have to chase the, the kid around uh, as, a, as a nurse to him, so she certainly would have to gain some physical strength in that sense. But, but in addition to that, she would gain great spiritual encouragement to see her faith revived, to see her hope renewed in the promises of God as God is bringing this new life into her life to show that he has indeed been faithful all along. Again, it's a dark night of the soul for, for Naomi, for a long time in the beginning of the book of Ruth. But this blessing of a grandchild, uh, it assures her once again of God's tender mercies and his faithfulness to his, his good provisions uh, for her and, and for her own. Of course, Obed would never replace Naomi's husband. He would never replace Naomi's sons. That's, that's not the point. Uh, but that grandchild would once again assure her of God's covenant of love uh, to her. You know, when a, whenever a newborn comes to our, into our lives, I think it's, it really is life-changing because all of a sudden we once again see that there is this God who is the Creator who brings life from nothing, seemingly. And all of a sudden this new life not only enters into that child, but now enters into our lives as well. This, this new hope of life that God brings us both now and through the generations. But it's interesting, some people have actually critiqued the book of Ruth's ending as saying it's sort of Pollyannish, uh, really just making fun of it that, well, in the end, all things work out well and blah, 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 you know, kind of thing. But that's really not what's happening here at all. I mean, it's sort of ignoring everything that's happened in Naomi's life and the great bitter circumstances that she's faced all along just because at the end of the story, she sees this hope and this new birth. That doesn't mean that the rest of the days are happily ever after. Certainly, there's still going to be trials to come. There's still going to be dark days ahead in different ways. The child doesn't stop that, but what the child does is reassures her that God is for her and not against her, that God is going to provide and to care for her in all the ways that she had doubted before. There'll still be trials to come, but Obed now reminds her that God is going to do her well. In fact, it reminds me of a hymn. Uh, if you haven't uh, heard many of the renditions of Indelible Grace, Indelible Grace takes a lot of older hymns and puts them to, to new music. Uh, some of them are travesties to the old hymns, but some of them are good because they're not very familiar hymns to us. And one of those hymns, maybe it might be familiar to you, but it wasn't to me, is a 19th century hymn by Mary Boley Peters that uh, they've entitled All as Well. But here, here's how it goes. It, it says this, through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Free and changeless is His favor, all is well. Though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. 
Ours is such a full salvation. All is well. We expect a bright tomorrow. All will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. All is well. Why? Because on our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying, yes, in living or in dying, all must be well. I think Naomi is being reminded of this once again. It seems like everything is bad and that, that God is not in control, that God is not helping, but it's not true. Uh, all along, God has been working out all of these things on her behalf and on her family's behalf, and all is well, and all will be well, all must be well, because God still sits upon his throne, and God is still for us and not against us. But not only does God provide a redeemer for Naomi and for her lineage, if you will, in addition to that, through the birth of David, her great-great-grandson, God would also provide a king for Israel. In, in the latter part of verse 14, if you look in the text there, in the women's blessing upon Obed, they say to Naomi, may his name be renowned in Israel. Now they're referring to Obed and not to Boaz, right? Um, but again, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you really don't read much about Obed at all. You don't hear anything of, that he's done anything great or worthy of anything. Why is his name renowned in Israel? Only because his name comes up again and again and again in the genealogies as being the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. He's renowned because of his grandson who is renowned. Now, some have stated that this genealogy that's at the end of Ruth uh, it certainly was added later in the sense that uh, the, the actual events in the story happened much earlier, but now everything's being written later on, and the genealogy sort of summarizes it. But there are actually some liberal commentators that will say that it's really not needed, that it's sort of an addition that's not actually a part of the original text, um, but that really the whole story is rounded out nicely because it begins with Naomi being bitter and losing all her loved ones, and it ends with the birth of this new hope in her son. But I would say to you that uh, this story really isn't just about God's care for two desperate widows. It's much bigger than that. Not that that's not enough, uh, but, but the story is, is much bigger than that. In fact, if you remember, these events are occurring during the time of the judges. That's what we're told in the very first chapter, in the first verses, that it takes place during the time of judges. And if you remember, the book of Judges ended with a very important statement. Remember that statement? It was a recurring one. Simply said, in those days there was no what? No king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And, and also, if you remember, that when the book of Ruth begins, it doesn't actually begin talking about Naomi and Ruth. Who does it talk about? Elimelech. That Elimelech, whose name means my father is king, is being unfaithful, to God's kingdom by leaving the promised land. And he's going off on his own to accomplish, uh, to, get what, to get his own bread, if you will. Uh, but then we see that the story ends with this great, great, great grandson who becomes the king. The story doesn't make any sense unless you start at the right place with Elimelech and then end with David. It ends with David being renowned throughout Israel as the king of Israel. So, so the story really isn't complete without the genealogy. You have to have it because it's not just a distressed widow and her 
daughter-in-law that God is concerned about, but it's about a distressed country as well. The entire country is dilapidated in every way. The people are, are distressed because of ongoing oppression from foreign right in their own eyes. How is this going to be fixed? God is going to fix it through the lives of these two desperate women, but then also to assist and minister to this desperate people in the country of Israel. And that should give us pause to consider that all of these bad things that happened to Naomi and all the loss that she experienced, God was still doing something through that. Not only for her, but for her children for generations to come. It's interesting when I ask engaged couples, uh, why do you want to get married? Uh, 99.999% of the time, the man always says, because I love her, which I doubt completely. But I've never once had a man say anything like this, because I want to help this woman grow up in her sanctification unto Christ and present her as an unblemished bride to him. Nor have I ever had a man say, and also because I want to raise up a godly seed to the glory of God my Savior. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Now, we all know that's the reason for marriage and for bearing children. Those are the reasons. But we don't always think through those things, and certainly we don't have that, that far-looking view into the future of when a man and a woman want to get married, they're not thinking of their great-great-great-grandchildren, are they? They're thinking about themselves and how loving they feel at that moment. Unfortunately, most of us never live long enough even to see how our posterity will fare in life. I saw a picture online the other day. I think it was of a woman in Scotland or somewhere around there, 96-year-old woman who was sitting with her daughter and her granddaughter and her great-granddaughter and her great-great-granddaughter who was then holding her great-great-great-granddaughter. You don't see pictures like that too often. I have one in my family of a few greats, but not great-great-great, all in the same place. That's a rare photo indeed. Now, I'd say to you that it's, it's quite possible that Naomi's still alive at the birth of her great-great-grandson, David, but probably not likely that she was still alive when he was anointed king. So even though Naomi is rejoicing at the birth of Obed as a small blessing, after all of these years of bitterness, she doesn't see the next chapter of the story. We see it. She doesn't. That should make us think. When we complain and accuse God of evil, when he's brought us through difficult times, when we don't see that there's more chapters as this story that will continue to go on long after we've died, we don't see that. I was in uh, North Carolina last week, funeral. Sorry, that's why I'm crying probably. Um, I uh, spoke at my aunt's funeral, and I learned something about uh, the dark providences of God. Um, again, <laughs> I always knew that my mother had met my father at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, after my dad had gotten home from Vietnam. He was stationed at an army base there. What I did not realize was that my grandmother had met my grandfather at the exact same base when he was stationed at Fort Sill. Didn't bother to ask the good questions, I guess, but I thought, wow, they all happened to meet at the same place just, you know, years later in that sense. 
Of course, I didn't meet my wife at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I was never in the Army. Um, I met her at college in, in North Carolina. But what, what I found interesting, though, was later, 40 years after my grandfather, who after he had gotten out of the Army, later went into ministry, I graduated from the same seminary he did in North Carolina, 40 years after he did. Same place. But it dawned upon me, as I was talking to my parents, that... It's kind of hard to fathom these things when you think about them. Genealogies can be difficult to trace and and figure out uh, what's really going on. But in this particular case, it's pretty easy. My grandfather died 10 years before I was born. My grandfather died when my mother was 16 years old. A very dark providence. It was a sudden death. And the wife could not afford to keep all of these children by herself, so she moves back to Oklahoma to be with her parents. And it dawned upon me that if my grandfather had not died when my mother was 16, I never would have been born. Because if he would have lived a long life, she never would have moved back to Oklahoma, never have met my dad, and I would not be. It's very similar to what's going on here. If Elimelech would not have taken Naomi and her sons to Moab, Naomi would never have met Ruth. If Naomi's son Malan had never died, Ruth would never have gone back with Naomi to Bethlehem, never have married Boaz. Boaz would never have begotten Obed. Obed would never have begotten Jesse. Jesse would never have begotten David. How God works through these dark providences in our lives. But if I were to ask my mother when she was 16, I'm going to get it together here. Would she have wanted her dad back? Absolutely. Yet God still works through those things. It, 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 it dumbfounds me. But again, how foolish we are to accuse God of evil when all the time he's working his good. All right, next point. Through the birth of Jesus, Naomi's greatest descendant, God would also provide a Savior for the world. Strangely, it was actually the women in the neighborhood who give the name to Naomi's grandson and to Ruth's son, they name him Obed, which again, uh, uh, certainly the parents would have agreed to this. They wouldn't have done it against the parents' wishes. But it was a special occasion, a very unusual birth, and uh, everyone was in on it in that sense. But the nation of Israel as a whole is at times, uh, you know, subject to such things. So they name him Obed. Obed's name is a shortened form of Obadiah, which means servant of the Lord. Now, as you know, I think Israel is, uh, is also called the servant of the Lord. It's supposed to be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to the Gentiles, a blessing to the world. But also, as you know, throughout the Old Testament, you really don't see that happen very often. Later on, David is also referred to as a servant of the Lord. But again, he's too busy fighting the battles and, 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 and ruling over Israel to make that happen. But the prophets continue to use that same title again and again. The servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. This one is coming, and he is going to reign on the throne of David forever. 
right? And so when we finally get to the New Testament and we see Jesus, uh, he identifies himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, again, as this servant. You know, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's basically referencing Isaiah 53, this servant of the Lord who's going to suffer and to die on behalf of his people. And so all throughout the New Testament, we see this as the consistent testimony that Matthew begins his genealogy, his, his, his book with the genealogy. Most of us as kids and maybe even as adults have wondered, why did you make such a stupid choice and open your book with the genealogy? I mean, none of us know who any of these people are, and, and we get lost just like in Genesis with all the begats and the begottens, and I mean, you might as well just skip that and move on to Mark. Mark gets right into the action. But Matthew has a, a very important purpose, and the Jews who are reading this are on the edge of their seats reading this who believe in the promises of God because all of a sudden he opens that with these 28 generations after David that all is leading up to Jesus. And he begins with all the, he begins that in, in saying that the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So every promise that was ever given to Abraham of this seed who was to come is fulfilled in Jesus. Every promise that is given to David, and even way back before then, but given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, of this seed, the son who would come and would reign on the throne forever, is all fulfilled in Jesus. And then we see Matthew's gospel as a whole. One prophecy after another, after another, after another, saying all of this is pointing to Jesus. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And so when John the Baptist and Jesus actually come on the scene, they're both talking about the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king has finally come. The promised son of David. Why do the people on, on, on Palm Sunday, what are they singing out? Hosanna, the son of David. They see the promise of God is fulfilled in their midst that the son that had long been promised has now come. Of course, you know the women in our church are studying uh, this genealogy now, uh, particularly the, the, the names of the women in, uh, in Matthew's genealogy. Uh, and it's very unusual, I, I think, you, as you know, that in ancient times for even a woman's name to be mentioned in the genealogy. It never mentions the mother's name. It's always the father's name. Uh, but not just the fact that they're mentioned, but they're the, the, the unkosher women, if you will. They're, they're not the clean women. They're not always the godly women, but there's something unusual about them. When you go through the list, we think of Tamar, a foreign woman who was married to Judas, two of Judas' sons, if you remember, and then he refused to give the third son to her. So what does she do? She dresses up as a prostitute, entices him to sleep with her, and there you go. There's the genealogy that Jesus is a part of. Same thing, uh, instead of dressing up like a prostitute, the next woman on the list, Rahab, is a prostitute, and yet she expresses faith and, and, and hides the spies uh, in Jericho. Then we find Ruth, the Moabite. Again, she's not uh, an unseemly woman. She's not at all associated with sexual immorality, but she is one of the tribes that are hated most by Israel, the hated Moabites who are not even allowed to come into the sanctuary of God in that sense. And yet uh, she's included in that genealogy. And then finally have Mary, the young girl who gave birth to Christ without the help of a man, which causes problems later on with the number of people, as you can imagine. But certainly it's a very unusual group of people listed alongside a, a number of, I'd have to say, sinful and unsavory men as well. 
Uh, we're not just pointing out that the women were sinful and the rest of the guys were just great. Uh, again, keep in mind, uh, the men in, this, in these uh, genealogies are also great sinners, and some of them were murderers and liars and slanderers and adulterers as well. And yet, the Lord still worked through that. So the, the list of names is, is not just so that I can torture Mark and David and make them read these long chapters. Um, but it's to encourage us on the one hand of God's faithfulness to His promises. That what He had promised in the past to provide for His people, He always keeps His promises. But then on the other hand, also to show us the mercy of God in Christ Jesus to sinners. The reason why he purposely includes all of these sinners on the list and shows them in the midst of their sin is to give us hope in the God who saves us. Uh, again, for God so loved the world, right? Not just the nation of Israel, but all the world, including these Gentiles like Ruth in the genealogy, so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So we see again this greater story that's being written than just about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. It's not just about them. It's not just about Israel. Ultimately and always, it's about Christ. Every single time. And His role as our Redeemer. It, it reminds me of the, the movie, uh, the, the cartoon kids movie, Ants. Uh, it's a little story about two ants. One's a, a very faithful worker ant who falls in love with the princess ant. And, uh, and it's a love story about the two of them. But the, the movie ends with the, the camera panning out from their ant colony farther and farther and farther until you see that this is taking place in the heart of Central Park in New York City and then you see it in the, in the context of the world, right? Uh, that life is so much bigger than what's going on in, in those two little ants' lives. In the same way that the genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth is panning out and panning out and panning out, that you could see there's so much more going on than just what you just read with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. It's all about Christ, the Redeemer. And all of the sufferings that Naomi underwent, ultimately, even, is for the sake of Christ the Redeemer being revealed to the world. If you think about it, that's why we were created, right? We were created for God's purposes. Ultimately, that Christ would be revealed. We're not some cosmic accident. We are not just some random DNA strands that do random acts of kindnesses for one another. That's not at all what we are. We're created by God for the glory of God and ultimately that Christ would be glorified in our lives. And so every day of our lives, every aspect of our lives, every moment is for our sanctification, for our glory to share and to manifest the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Every single aspect, even our darkest of days, all of our trials, all of our tribulations, all of our setbacks, all of our sufferings, darkest of days, ultimately that Christ would be glorified. I mean, at the end of your life, if all you had to show for it at the end was that ultimately Christ is revealed, that should be enough. Because the story's not just about us. It's ultimately about Christ. Of course, for those who have never trusted in Christ, to them their sufferings have no purpose. 
they don't have any meaning uh, for them when they undergo painful times. They either see them as random acts or they see them as a God who just hates them and just wants to hurt them for no good reason. So they remain bitter against God and, and never learn from their sufferings. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, as a fellow sufferer, <laughs> fellow sinner, the story is not about you. Never has been. And I think that's the, the greatest lie that the devil has ever given us in our sin, to think that the story is all about me. And that's why we can't understand our sufferings. We can't understand the good and what God is doing behind the scenes. Uh, instead, we just look at ourselves and, and think, I'm a better character than this. <laughs> I deserve better than this. But it's simply not true. The Scripture teaches very much that we're worthy of more suffering than we have received. It's God's mercy to us each day of our lives that we are not in greater suffering than we are, knowing that the ultimate destiny for any sinner is and ought to be a world of suffering in hell. But the beauty of the Gospel is that God sends His Son, Jesus, to be the sufferer in our place, to redeem us from the wrath of God, to give us mercy that we might enjoy our life, to have an abundant life in Christ Jesus, and even to redeem our sufferings. The truth of the matter is everyone suffers, but not everyone suffers for good. Some suffer for no good reason at all. I think if there's anything we can learn from the book of Ruth, it is simply that. That for the righteous, there is a purpose behind our suffering. And it's all about Christ. If you have eyes to see that and ears to hear that, then you can rejoice with me in your sufferings. But if you don't, I can only promise you hopelessness and bitterness for the rest of your life because there's nothing to look forward to but more suffering. This is the day of salvation. This is the day, the hour. Trust in Christ. He has suffered in our place. He is the one who gives us new hope, new life, the restorer of life, and the nourishment of our souls. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us this morning uh, to, to look outside of ourselves, even though we don't see everything. We certainly don't understand how you're working all the cogs and the wheels to, to make everything work together. But we know, nevertheless, that you are at work and that there is a purpose behind all of this and that you are working it toward a conclusion.